I come from a large family, uh, large certainly by today's standards, although when I was a youngster uh, growing up, we grew up in a heavily Catholic area, and uh, having only six kids in your family, people thought you were Methodists. Uh, There were people that had 10, 11 kids in the family. It was like insanity. Uh, Here's a picture of my family here at my parents' 40th anniversary. Uh, I have five sisters. Yes, that explains a lot of my feminine characteristics. Thank you very much. Well, my sensitivity, uh, we get it, I understand. Um, one of the other things that you probably would like to know is really fascinating is I'm the fifth out of six, uh, and the first five of us were born in a six-year span. So you new moms who are thinking life is tough, just imagine how insane my mother must have been either before or after she decided to have five kids in six years. Uh, that's unbelievable. I, I love my mom, uh, but I, I just don't know how she did that. That's a, that's a, she's a trooper, that's for sure. Uh, being the fifth of six, that means I had four sisters ahead of me at most of the schools I attended, and they were all great students and good kids. So when the black sheep of the family showed up at the high school, uh, I was introduced to the vice principal of discipline. His name was Mr. Zarchin. Mr. Zarchin was a really nice man. And he loved my four sisters. Uh, and um, he was uh, surprised by me. Uh, the first semester at the high school, I was in his office three separate times. And not for good reasons. Uh, not like one of the PAL students who comes in and goes, Mr. Zarchin, we just love you. Hi. I had been thrown out of class. And I definitely was not like my sisters. And some people, this is a really traumatic part of their childhood wasn't for me. Um, (laughs) It's a long story, but it really wasn't that painful for me. I had a lot of fun. Um, For some, uh, being the middle child or or having to follow an older brother or sister who was incredible and and the superstar of your family, a lot of firstborn children are these incredible overachievers. And in our family, that was certainly the case. My sister Kathy is the most gifted person in our family and, uh, and she's without question the best preacher in our family, just in case you were wondering. She's an amazing speaker. So uh, I had, you know, quite an example to follow. A tremendous student went to this very nice school, the University of Virginia. You may have heard of it. I went on the other side of the border to West Virginia University where the students who couldn't get into the University of Virginia went. Uh, so, you, you know, this whole, this whole notion of a family dynamic uh, comes into play for us today as we begin a new series entitled Bold Letters from the Blood Brothers. If you thought it was difficult having your older brother or sister, or you perhaps feeling the burden of being the older brother or sister, imagine what it was like to be one of Jesus' siblings. Imagine the pressure. We study the letters now of Jude and James. We're going to go all the way through the summer to do this. Tradition has ascribed these letters to his brothers, this one to Jude, mentioned in both Matthew and Mark's Gospels and in a particular setting that's, that's noteworthy. Jesus came back to his hometown after he started his public ministry. He was just turned 30, he, and, and they weren't like his biggest fans. He didn't get the parade. In fact, many of his neighbors thought he had kind of lost his marbles. They said things like this. In Matthew 13, 55 through 58, quote, Is not this the carpenter's son? 
Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and is in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So he has this fairly enormous family, and he's the oldest brother. And yes, you see listed here one of the brothers' names as Judas. There are at least eight different Judases in the New Testament, but I, I suspect that after Judas Iscariot became such a household name for becoming a traitor, that they all adopted nicknames, and hence Jesus' little brother now calls himself Jude, wouldn't you? I certainly would, that's for sure. He was the youngest son of Mary, born to she and Joseph, along with the rest of the kids, after they gave birth to Jesus. Can you imagine being the younger brother of Jesus? Can you imagine being a sibling in Jesus' family? You're not quite the student your brother is. Can you imagine that? Your big brother never showed up late for temple. I mean, can you imagine the difficulty level of that? Your big brother never used his own name in vain. All the pressure that would come with being a a sibling of Jesus. Jesus' brothers refused to believe in him during his lifetime. But James, his eldest brother, was later converted and subsequently became a significant leader in the Jerusalem church. James is also the, the author of the second letter in our study, the book of James, because he was a prominent figure in the church. And so it makes sense that Jude would reference in his introduction to his letter that he was related uh, to James. As well, you can see the Apostle Paul, if you want to look this up on your own, in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, mentions this whole family of Jesus' brothers. Now, next week, we are going to get into more specifics of why Jude was writing. But today, we're first going to look at who Jude was and to whom he is writing this first letter in our series. We need to know him. And the first two verses give us quite a bit of information. Normally for a lot of us, the first two verses are kind of throwaway verses in our study time. You know, you start a new book of the Bible and you go, yeah, 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 greetings and salutations, blah, blah, blah. And then you kind of just, you think, where's the detail? Where's the beef? Let's get to the meat of the story. But in this particular case, given that Jude is one of the shortest letters in the New Testament, what we're going to end up seeing is, It's packed full of information that is useful to us. And so we begin today by observing first how Jude describes himself. And Jude calls himself a brother and a servant of Jesus Christ. Jude is a brother and he's a servant of Jesus Christ. Let me read the first two verses for us again from Jude 1 and 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called. Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Do you happen to know any name droppers? I I do, and I find them a little sad. If you don't know what a name dropper is, a a person who name drops is generally searching for significance by virtue of their associations. A name dropper casually mentions the name of famous or important people to create the impression of, that they're familiar with them, that they're close to them, so as to impress or influence others. 
Now, if anyone ever had cause for name dropping, you'd think it would be Jude. You'd think he would most certainly mention that he was the half-brother of Jesus, but he didn't. Now, most of us would make sure that this impressive relationship was the top spot on our resume. I know I would. Jude starts off not with this, but instead a reaffirmation that Jesus is his Lord too. He recognizes that he is part of the kingdom of God by grace. He recognizes Jesus' kingship and assigns himself the lowly status as Christ's servant. Now, before you jump over the word servant and think, yeah, 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 we're all supposed to serve Jesus, understand that this is the Greek word doulos, and this word means bondservant or slave. He is saying he is his big brother's bondservant. Imagine calling one of your siblings your master. Probably wouldn't happen in your family. I'm fairly confident it wouldn't happen in mine. A bondservant was somebody who was owed, who owed money and basically made themselves the servant or the slave of someone else in order to pay that back. So if I borrowed 200 grand from you and I blew it in Vegas and now the next thing you know, I'm into you for $200 and I have no way of paying it back, I could actually go to work at your farm and instead of wages, you'd feed me and take good care of me, but I would just work off that debt. This is the nature of a bond servant. It was an, it's an indentured slavery. It's not all that dissimilar to how all of us function in North American culture. You've heard people say, I'm a slave to my job. And what that generally means for people is I have a mortgage and a family that I have to feed, and so I can't just quit my job. I have to do this because I have an obligation that I have to meet. So if you're a, a servant, a bond slave to somebody, it means that you are subservient to and entirely at their disposal because you owe them. Think of the amazing reality of Jude's world. His older brother is now, he understands, to be God incarnate, which would explain a lot of your childhood, wouldn't you think? When you come to that conclusion, wouldn't that go, now I get it, you know? Why wouldn't he do certain things, and why did he do certain things? Okay, that, that clarifies things for me. He then realizes that his older brother is also his Savior who died for his sins. And upon realizing that his older brother, Jesus, had paid for his redemption and made him a co-heir of God the Father, Jude still refers to himself as one who is subservient to his master, Jesus, his brother. This is not some emotionally troubled person who loves to self-abuse in the name of religious zealotry, it is Jude. Few knew Jesus as well as his family. Few knew his disposition of grace and kindness quite like the people who were close to him. And yet Jude calls himself a servant. It's an echo of something Jesus had taught in the years previous that obviously at the time Jude didn't believe. In John 12, 26, Jesus said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus was saying, you know, to be in relationship with me means you're going to be my servant. You're going to see things through my eyes. The need for 
humble recognition of our call to be obedient to and follow Jesus is one of the major purposes for Jude's letter. Hence, Jude demonstrated his own deference to Jesus before he would call all of us and anyone who would read this letter to a submission of their lives to the risen Christ. In effect, Jesus was saying, you're not doing anything that I haven't had to do too. Another way to say it is Jude might be saying, if the half-brothers and sisters of Jesus don't get a highly privileged place in the kingdom, the non-relatives certainly don't. My wife Carolyn and my daughter Holly have made their application for membership. We are having our first class of members received into our church next week. Very exciting time for us as a church, another milestone. And uh, one of the things that's funny about it is, is that I'm giving my wife and daughter a hard time as I'm reading over their applications because I'm one of the elders. And so I read the applications. And in Carolyn's application, it says, in no less than 250 words, tell us your story about how you came into a relationship with Christ. And I counted Carolyn's words, and it was 175. And so I pointed out to her that she wasn't going to be able to come a member because she wasn't willing to write at least 250 words. I did not really do that, so if you're new here, I'm sorry. My sense of humor is a bit twisted. But it was fun to kind of poke at her. You may find it strange that my wife and daughter have to apply for membership like everybody else, but why wouldn't they? I mean, just because I'm the pastor of the church doesn't mean that my kids get a different path to membership. They must agree, as all members do, to allow our doctrinal standards to guide our church and to allow the collective that is our elders to be the final word about the direction of our church and about what gets taught as truth here in our church. This is what Jude is saying to you and to me. He begins what will be a letter of admonition, a letter of strong direction. James, his brother, will do the same But they begin by reminding us that we are all sons and daughters of the Most High God by His grace alone. Jesus' little brother knew that he was highly privileged to be the bondservant of Jesus. And he wants us to know that that is the call for all believers. We are all called because of what Christ has done to serve Him, to be at His disposal. His will for our lives is what is supposed to drive us. Of late, when I've been praying, I I say, and I've been trying to, in greater ways, invoke a sense of that in my own prayer life. Instead of saying, this will make me happy and that will make me happy and God tell me what I want. I'm saying, you know, God, at a certain point in my life, hopefully now at 50, I can actually say, Jesus, what do you want me to do with my life? Instead of looking at it through the lens of, Do I want something new or do I want something bigger or, you know, how we all do that? I'm saying, you know, Jesus, maybe there's something you want for my life that ultimately is for my best and actually will give me a greater sense of purpose and joy. And and Jude is saying that he's found that in being a bondservant of his older brother. Jude's a brother. He's also a servant of Jesus Christ. And here's the second thing I'll show you about to whom Jude is writing. He's writing to the called The called are beloved and kept for Jesus, for Jesus Christ. It says in verse 2, he writes this to all who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude is speaking to this group, those who are called. It's an interesting phrase. The term called is significant. He's talking about the internal call of the Holy Spirit. 
not an external call that goes to the whole world. The message of the gospel goes to every nation, every person. The internal call, the call of which Jude is speaking, is what produces new life in us. He's speaking to the people who've responded to the call. They've received something within them that has awakened them, that enables them to actually understand the gospel and hear it and see it. This internal call is what we would say took place in the life of someone like, uh, someone like Lazarus, Jesus' friend. See, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, G, uh, the, the apostle Paul writes that we were dead before God called us and brought us to life. Uh, a dead man cannot respond to anything. He cannot cooperate with any kind of call, external or internal. And like Jesus' friend Lazarus laying in a grave, one cannot come to life unless God acts upon us. In the same manner, until God awakens us, we can't respond to the gospel in faith. We look at Jesus' experience in John 11. He comes up on the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He's weeping with the family. And it says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Think about it. How in the world could Lazarus respond to the call of Jesus to come, for, uh, to come forth if he hadn't been brought to life first so his ears would work? And this is what the call is to us. It is an awakening. It is when Jesus has a moment of great compassion as he did with his friend and by grace is moved to call and wake us up so that we can come forth. This internal call is talked about in other parts of the Scriptures. One passage of Scripture, we read the first verse of three verses a lot to give ourselves comfort, but don't necessarily pay attention to the two verses that follow it. So I thought I'd very quickly walk through the second New Testament reading that we had this morning, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Now, the, the first verse of it is a really appropriately applied verse for those of us who struggle with anxiety. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I read that verse and I've memorized it, and when stuff is going wrong and the stuff has hit the fan, and I feel like, oh, goodness gracious, you know, how am I going to make it? I'm really tense and, and nervous and anxious. I mentally will do what many of us do. I'll, I'll, I'll think to myself, God works everything together for good. It's not just that everything works together. God works everything together. The cultural idiom is everything has a purpose. Nah, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now he's going to explain this a little more. And this goes to our subject Jude's declaration that he's writing this letter to the called. He says in verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. There it is again. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there's a four-part process, an order, if you will, where somebody has been determined from all eternity, the God who foreordains everything that comes to pass says, 
I am going to find you. I'm going to chase you down. You are going to be my daughter. You are going to be my son. I have determined that you're going to be one of mine. And so he had predetermined he's coming after you. Then what happens is he calls you to life. And then that the moment you express faith, you are justified. You are made right with the Father through your faith. And then when it's all said and done, you and I will be reunited with him face to face and we will be glorified. We will look and act and be just like Jesus in his presence for all eternity. Theologians refer to this in a fancy Latin way. They call it the ordo salutis, which is, of course, Latin for the order of salvation. Salvation is predestination, predestined, called, justified, glorified. This is the the order and the decrees of God and the mind of God, something hardly any of us could probably comprehend. In this grand scheme of things, Paul gives us a vision, and part of that is he sees that Jesus has gone out of his way not just to die for us, but to call us forth and bring us into eternal life. Now, lest you think that this concept of the, uh, the internal call is something that you know, modern scholars have uh, invented, it's really talked about in other parts of the Scriptures too. This idea that the Holy Spirit has to be present. Jesus said, many are called, few are chosen. Jesus said, if anyone comes after me, he must first be enabled, empowered, drawn by my Father to do so. R.C. Sproul, who is one of my professors, wrote this about Romans 8, 28 through 30. I'd like to read it because I think it's a really good explanation of the, of the text and really this whole concept that Jude is trying to reinforce as he begins his letter to us about he's writing to the call. About Romans eight twenty eight. Sproul says, quote, It says that all things work together for good to those who have been called by God. Does this refer to the external call of the gospel or to the internal call of God's spirit? Clearly it refers to the latter. People who are externally called and who then reject the gospel will go to hell. And things will not be for their good in hell. Consider Romans 8.30. It says that those who are called by God are justified and glorified. If this referred to the external call of the gospel, it would mean that all people are justified and glorified because, well, obviously they're all called. In fact, of course, it refers to God's internal call. The doctrine of the internal call cannot be avoided if we take the Bible seriously, and it leaves no room for man to play a part in his own salvation. This is why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, it's by grace we've been saved through faith, and this is not from ourselves; it's the gift of God, not by work, so no one can boast. It's so that I don't go, I'm a really impressive Christian, look at what I've done. I mean, it's not like, I've heard this a million times. People say, I walked forward, I signed the card, I got baptized. Salvation is him coming to get us. I don't know about you, maybe you were one of these wandering philosophers wandering your way through Tibet, thinking about truth. That was not me. I was just kind of on my way to doing whatever I wanted to do to make myself happy, thinking I was going to do something that actually would fulfill my soul. And God broke into my world, awakened me, and helped me see who he was. The point of Jude's reference to calling the recipients of his letter the called is really twofold. First, Jude wants us to humbly recognize that we did not convert ourselves. In the same way Jude didn't choose to be born into the family of the Messiah, 
You and I didn't choose to bring the gospel to our lives, pick the place where we heard the gospel, or had within us the capacity to believe without God's grace. Jude wants you and I to know we are the beloved of God. He adores his children. If you are his children, he adores you. He doesn't just sort of kind of like you, put up with you. He has such amazing joy over you, his child. He loves you. You are his beloved. The second thing that Jude would want to reinforce for us, and that's why he says the kept for Jesus, he wants us to take great comfort in the reality that if we were sought out by God and enabled to believe by being brought to life by his grace, God will keep us till the end. Through the pain and the struggles of life, through the ups and downs of our seasons of doubt and our besetting sins, the good news is if you're a child of God, you will be kept through it all. You can't become the non-children of God once you've been brought into his family. If you are his child for real, you are secure in him. See, it's in light of these amazing truths that Jude concludes his his greeting with what amounts to this beautiful benediction. It's odd because it's at the very beginning of a letter, but he's so overjoyed, he says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. What an interesting way to start a letter. Haven't you ever felt that way, though? For a brief moment, you get a picture of just how fortunate you are. Last week, I was uh, sitting with my son eating wings, and, and I was thinking to myself, I'm doing everything I ever wanted to do right now, and I'm living exactly where I wanted to live in this really great home with my, the love of my life for 25 years. And I just said, you know, on days like today, I'm just amazed at how good God is. And I felt like I had to say it because I do a lot of complaining naturally. And so I think you kind of understand that, right? And so Jude has this moment where he goes, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. See, the beautiful truth of being kept for Jesus Christ is that he's the author and the finisher of our faith. Don't know about you, I was raised in a Roman Catholic home. I don't know what your church background is, but I can assure you I've heard from every denominational referenced uh, from any person I've talked to. And one thing seems to be a consistent theme for people who are raised in a church context. doesn't matter if you were faithful church attendees or were trained in a religious environment. Oftentimes, people have one abiding feeling. This was certainly the case for me as a young Catholic. God wasn't happy with me. You just kind of had that sense. It was always like, oh boy, judgment day is coming. You know, you always had this sense that God wasn't happy with you. Any messages that I'd heard about the necessity to obey his commands were heard in my mind as do better, try harder, and maybe, just maybe, when judgment day comes, you'll get to heaven. That's what I heard, and be good. I I didn't hear anything else. Then I started hanging around with the charismatic Protestant types who were born again, and I prayed a prayer to begin a relationship with Jesus that was by his grace alone through faith. And I was told once I did that, that I would be able to know that I was saved and going to heaven. And then I assumed that was true. Then I started getting other conflicting messages from the church that said, unless, of course, you get into a pattern of disobedience and struggle, if you have any 
times where you lapse or begin to doubt whether or not what you said you believed as a child is true, you're probably not a child of God any longer. You could have been a child, but now you're not a child. You've moved from being a part of the family to getting kicked out of the family. In a crazy sense, the Holy Spirit lived in you, and the Holy Spirit's decided to bodily eject from you. You, you know, so you've gone from being in the club to out of the club. This is the feeling you get. Like, oh gosh, what? I'm like walking on eggshells because I'm just scared. There's no joy because there's no assurance of salvation. Well, the method of operation was to get us to obey the Savior by scaring us to death. Whether it was active disobedience or passive disobedience, it seemed clear to me that people were saying there was no way for me to know whether or not I was really going to go to heaven, that that was still in flux. Jude wants to make sure that we all understand something very clearly. If you are his child, if you're his child, you are kept for all eternity. That means through the difficult seasons. That means through the seasons where you wander off and foolishly hurt yourself and then come back. He reminds us that we are the beloved, chosen, and kept children of grace. Jude, the little brother of Jesus, had an imminently more secure and intimate relationship with Jesus than most. And it was that comfort and security in Jesus that made him want to be, need to be, desire to be a servant of Christ. We will find out as we progress through these two letters from James and John that there are going to be some moments for you and I where we're going to have to face potentially something that is difficult for us to see in the Scriptures, some, some really strong admonitions to care for the poor, which in our culture is like cool and trendy to do, but then when we start talking about how much I've actually done to help the poor, it gets a little up in our kitchen. You also start talking about whether or not we're supposed to care for orphans or widows. We, in, we are challenged in multiple places by Jesus' two brothers that our lifestyles may indicate that we really don't love God and really aren't in relationship with him. And that doesn't mean that we have to be perfect to be his children, but you may discover that you really don't care. You know, culturally, there's some, you know, there's some cachet to be able to be saying, I'm part of a church, or you may come from a part of the country or some other country where culturally it was kind of sort of cool and in to be a believer. And you may discover, you know what, I don't think I am. I don't really care. I don't sense any regret when I blow it. These things may come your way. For some of you who know you're Christians, who grieve at that moment where, you are, where something is pointed out to you that's painful but true, kind of like somebody who you know who might be confronted by friends and family about their need to go to treatment for some addiction or some compulsion, they never are really receptive to it, but you're telling them the truth because you love them. They hear it. If they receive it, it's painful, but it's for their benefit. There are many of us who are Christians, and God wants us to hear these things because we're harming ourselves through these kind of behavioral things, these kind of behavioral patterns, these kind of sinful patterns. They're not glorifying to him or helpful to us. He's going to try to get you and I to listen to those things. He's going to bring this through the word the teachings of Jude and James. But before we can go there, we've got to know that we're okay with God. You've got to know that he's 
wanting to shape your life like a sculptor shapes a big rock. I mean, it's not, if you can imagine how a rock would feel if it had feelings, you know, chink does not feel really good, but I tell you, it is for the rock's benefit. We would much rather look at a beautiful sculpture than a big hunk of rock. And in the same way, God is working on you and I. We, are, we have great potential in Christ. But if we completely ignore the difficult things that he wants to say that may help us and benefit us because we just don't, we just don't want the discomfort of it, then we're never going to get to a place where we know the joy of following him, know the joy of glorifying him. And we won't do that until we get a real understanding of how complete the redemption in Christ has been. You do not have to be afraid of God if you are in Christ. You do not have to fear judgment. The only way you and I will look into the abyss of our sin and struggle is to know that we are loved, beloved, that we have been called and we are kept for Christ. I conclude today with something from one of my favorite theologians, Charles Spurgeon. He says this, When I thought God as hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Let us pray. Father, today as we embark on a five-month study of the letters from Jesus' brothers Jude and James, I pray that we would be attuned to the reality of what you would say to us. I have to confess to my brothers and sisters here that I'm as prone as anyone to avoid the difficult things in Scripture. Something that would call me to sacrifice or something that would call me to change or to avoid a pattern that may feel good in the short run but is really destructive in the long run. Or even just the straight call that I'm supposed to let my life be yours. That you have redeemed me and I'm your bondservant. There's, there's, a, there's a rebellious autonomy in me and perhaps in most of my brothers and sisters too. So thank you for Jude's words to us and your word through him that we are your beloved, that we are your chosen, you love us, that you will keep us. And I pray that that confidence would grow in us so that we would dare, dare to hear what you have to say to us. And that, Father, you would, by your grace, do a gentle work in our hearts. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior.